Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Revelation 14 this morning. Revelation 14. We're uh, heading back to the whiteboard. So once again, we're going to do the interactive thing as much as we're, we're able to do it this morning. Uh, so Revelation chapter 14, just as a reminder before jumping in the text. That was funny. I heard my like wife's voice in my head. Make sure you announce da 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 da. So here's the, here's the announcements to communicate to you real quick. VBS uh, coming up really fast, July 26th through the 28th. I know, uh, I think meals have been figured out and all that wonderful stuff. Uh, we have um, some, some bedding needs, sheets, pillows, blankets. Um, so yeah, really, really anything at this point. I know several of them will bring those things anyhow. That's the way it typically rolls, but we have plenty of air mattresses at this point. We're covered uh, on, that, on that end. Uh, so yeah, sheets, blankets, and pillows are, are all that's needed at this point. Uh, we may be doing a little bit of decorating. We're gonna kind of keep it to more of a minimum uh, this year, uh, just, in, just because of some of the, the time elements. You know, it's coming up really, really soon. Uh, beyond VBS then, uh, we have a youth camp. Uh, August 5th through the 7th. It's going to be at Green Tree Church in New Jersey. So it's for all those 12 and up. And so it's going to actually be a few nights in tents on their property. So uh, it'll, it'll be a fun time. There's, I think, a day scheduled at the water park and, and, and whatnot. So there's and a day, I think, at the shore. So uh, a lot of fun times and good teaching will be, be had uh, for them. So uh, there is a registration link that's out there in the emails and stuff. Or you can see James. Yeah, there is a registration box that goes up Thursday. So if you want to join us for that, that's great. If you need help paying for it, please let me know. Yeah. Don't be uh, shy about that either. Um, we're, we're here and we want to we serve. Uh, so be straight up if you need any help uh, with that. Uh, finally, then, school supplies. We're going to be helping out Lawton. Uh, and so, backpack school supplies. Uh, Eric, you didn't get any specifics on that, did you? Eric, Monia, did you get any specifics on Lawton? No, not yet. I'm waiting for her to come back down. Hopefully, this weekend I will. I'm working on it. All right, cool. So, we, we got the kind of general needs that they have, but we're still working on specifics in order to uh, best serve Lawton. So, Larry's heading heading that up, and so if you want to bring pencils, crayons, and there's a list there of all the stuff that uh, could be useful to them. So we'll fill up that barrel and uh, send it over to them as soon as it's full. Uh, I think that does it for announcements. All right, Revelation 14. Uh, just before jumping in, so you know, uh, Revelation, again, divided up into three cycles of seven. We've worked through the seal judgments, we've worked through the trumpet judgments, and now we're at this interlude place between the second and third cycle. Um, what we have in this interlude is what is to be an encouragement to the church. Remember what John does is as he goes through these, these images of judgment, He's, he steps back at certain points in times to give encouragement to the church. Um, so last week, we began to see a few of the beasts, the tactics of the enemy, and now we'll see the outcome of that uh, as it relates to chapter 14. So we're going to read it, and then we're going to interact through it. 
uh, and see what the Lord has for us. So Revelation chapter 14, we're going to read this whole thing. John says in verse 1, he says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing on their harp, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. We'll look at that. Uh, it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, and language, and people, and he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. 
and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Just a warning before jumping in to this. Um, this is packed again with apocalyptic imagery. There's a lot here, a lot of pieces to kind of work out. And there are some grim kind of pictures of the reality of hell. And as we consider those, we're gonna kind of hold the tension and kind of at the end kind of deal with some of the tensions of just hearing the, the, the description of the judgments of hell as they're seen here. Um, we went on vacation, uh, when was it, a few weeks ago? Uh, we drove over 40 hours, we, like somewhat of a full work week for a two-week vacation, you know? And so uh, it, it was crazy because then every time we were jumping into the van, we, we would hear everyone just kind of exhale, like, ugh. We gotta, you know, we gotta do this again. But in those moments, of just like, oh, can we do this? Can we really get through this? Uh, we remembered, hey, we remembered the destination. We remember where we're actually going. We get to see family face to face. We get to hang out. We get to rest. That on the other end of this journey, no matter how hard it seems and how many hours we are stuck in this crazy van, you know, it begins to smell after a while and all that kind of stuff. Right? We finally arrive and it becomes all worth, why? Because we know the destination. The destination helps us endure the journey. The outcome helps us endure the way, right? What we have in Revelation 14 is the outcome. We get to see kind of how everything works out because if you remember in Revelation chapter 12, we have this recap of the storyline of scripture. There is a child who is born, the Christ, the Messiah figure, right? And he is the one who is to rule with a rod of iron. And of course, Satan, the dragon, is there to come after the child to do away with him. And of course, Satan is defeated. He's thrown down. And so scripture says in chapter 12, woe to earth and see, for the dragon has been thrown down. And why has he been thrown down? Well, he failed to take out the child, Jesus. He failed to take out the Messiah figure, so now he's turned his attention to us, the church, right? He's come to torment the church. He knows that his time is short, and so last week what we began to see is satan's tactics remember we were invited into his war room so to speak and and there his plans are laid out on the table and we actually got to see into the tactics that satan is going to use against the church does anyone remember the two tactics what are the two tactics as represented by the beasts remember what, what was it okay oppression uh, persecution, right? Yep, persecution. We, we used oppression and persecution. Anybody remember the other one? Cute cuddle. All right, deception. 
the cute, cuddly, lamb-like beast, right? That Satan is going to work in both of these two ways globally to come against God's people. There will be persecution. There will be deception. And, of course, who's animating these tactics? While these two tactics are represented by these two beasts, right? Who's actually, who's behind the scene actually kind of animating this activity? Remember? All right, the dragon, Satan. Satan is not front stage. He is behind things. And ultimately, what is he doing? But he's, he's actually mimicking God. He's the counterfeit trinity. And so even we see that one of the heads of the beast is mortally wounded, but he resurrects, right? And we see that in the deception of the, the lamb, there is this image of the beast that, that actually comes to breath, another resurrection kind of uh, theme that we begin to see. And, and what Satan is doing, he's just bringing a counterfeit gospel to the world that opposes the Christian gospel. It's, it's deception at its finest. And, you know, my kids and I were going through uh, Harry Potter. So, and so, you know, like, I, I, I tend to be a bit more sensitive to those kind of spiritualistic kind of things, you know, uh, movies and whatnot. Uh, and, and I think the church needs to be more sensitive to it. Uh, but with conversation, I told my kids, let's go through these things, you know. And, and, and what do you see? It's like nothing new. It's, it's a great movie series, but it's nothing new. You find the same incredible themes from this story as you do in Harry Potter's just borrowing from the Bible, right? It, you know, I, I never saw the last two movies, I think it was, and, and oh, of course, Harry's going to die and resurrect and all this kind of, there's resurrection language, he's the chosen one, all this biblical messianic language that's attributed to little Harry Potter, he's the son of man, just in that narrative. And it's again to say what we find our world doing, part of the deception that's at work is just to kind of create kind of mimicking narratives of the true narrative. We know, our hearts long for it, don't they? Our heartstrings are kind of woven that way to, to, to just be thrilled by this story. A chosen one who comes and sacrifices himself in order to save us. And really what our world has done is taken that same narrative and written it in a thousand different ways just to mimic the true story. And in some level, it's our entertainment, but deep within, it's deception. It's the same narrative that Satan's going to use to draw people away from the true and living God, the true and living Christ. It's the same tactics. He's just a counterfeit trinity, right? So we see these two tactics being used uh, by the enemy. The church can expect that as we live uh, through the church age. But now we get to the outcome. Like, how does this actually play itself ultimately out. So the outcome of the church, once again, should give us endurance through the journey. All right, that's the main idea. If we know the outcome, if we know where this is all going, if we know where all this chaos is going, then it's gonna serve us in terms of endurance to get through it because we know ultimately what will happen. Chapter 14, it's the outcome. 
So the first outcome is this, is that the church stands in victory. Notice verse 1. What do we see happening? Somebody describe it to me. What do we see? What do we see first? What's the first image that pops out? A lamb on a mountain. All right, so here, here's our mountain, and, and, and there is a, a, a lamb who stands on top of it. All right, and, and, and what else? Oh, my goodness. All right, so there is 144,000. This crowd of people, right, that just... It's a massive crew of people, and what are they doing? They're what do you think? All right, they're they're singing. I'm singing. Anybody know that song? All right. Uh, they're singing and they're following the lamb, right? Now, to get the imagery, Mount Zion is a beautiful image throughout the storyline of scripture. Mount Zion refers to the place from which God rules over all and actually sees his purposes fulfilled. So we could go back to Psalm chapter two, which is a messianic Psalm. It foretells of this Messiah figure who comes and in Psalm two, verse six, I believe it is, it's, it's the father saying, my son will rule and reign from Mount Zion. When the nations are raging and they're conspiring against Yahweh, I will set my son on Mount Zion. He will rule them with a rod of iron and dash them like potter's vessels. And we've already seen some of that language, that ruling with a rod of iron in chapter 12. The, the child who is born to the woman is to rule with a rod of iron. What we begin to recognize here is that the lamb is the child. He is the one who will rule this chaos with a rod of iron. He will dash them like potter's vessels. The lamb stands on Mount Zion. Now, one of the other wonderful aspects of Mount Zion is that Hebrews 13, you remember that text? James preached it actually not too long ago. And Mount Zion is the place, as the text says, that we as the church have come to. We've come to Mount Zion. While we live in this craziness, we've actually come to Mount Zion. And Mount Zion becomes the place that is secure. It's that place uh, there's a movie out there that uses that. Now come to think of it, I forget. Is that Thor where they go to Zion to find some sort of security? I don't know. Some of you guys know it, would know it better. Maybe it's uh, Matrix or something. Zion is the, the all right, all right, got to get my movie right. But there again, the world borrowing from the narrative, the true narrative. And, and so what we have in Hebrews 13 is the church has already come in some sense to Mount Zion. It's the place that is unshakable while all other things, God says, I will shake once more. I will dash them again. I will dissolve it all. I will cause all of this chaos to fall like a house of cards. It's going to fall. It will be shaken again. 
But those who come to Mount Zion cannot be shaken. This is the, this is the rock that we, Psalm 40 was talking about earlier in the call to worship. It's the rock that my feet is set upon. It can't be shaken. Everything else will be shaken. Everything else will be dissolved. Everything else will come to a point and place of justice. But all those who remain with the lamb who stand with him, they are unshaken. Ah, yes. Right? So even when you think, man, life is giving way, aren't we seeing all this stuff taking place? The outcome is that the church stands on Mount Zion, this place that is unshakable. Now the 144,000, who have we said they are? Ooh, this is controversial. You've got to be careful. All right, so back in Revelation chapter 7, we've already seen the 144,000. Uh, and, and we saw that they are, a, it's like a military census that John hears. And it's the tr 12 tribes being, being declared, right? And, and it's all coming on the heels of this moment of who can stand under the wrath of the Lamb. And the answer is, well, this military force who follows the lamb. And as John hears this military census of the 144,000, it says, then he looked and he saw this innumerable amount of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The 144,000 become a symbol simply for the people of God throughout time. They are those who are following the lamb. And they're singing a new song. Right? Whenever it came to this idea of a new song in scripture, it was always on the heels of another victory. So you can go back to Exodus chapter 15, for instance, the Red Sea is split. There's this moment of impending doom. It's like, it's like God's people are stuck between the, the rock and the hard place. They're, they're stuck between the Red Sea, this symbolic place of chaos and death, water. If you ever watch movies, when death happens, it's raining, there's some sort of water being represented, right? The Red Sea was a picture of death, right? And then Pharaoh's coming, Pharaoh's coming to kill you. And what happens but God splits the Red Sea. His people walk through, and on the other end of that, what are they doing but singing a new song? It's to say on the heels of every victory, of every deliverance, they're singing. And so the 144,000 that represents the church at large, they're singing. There's this procession of victory that has taken place. And who can sing the song? Look at your Bible. <laughs> who can sing the song? Only them. In other words, this victory has been unique to them. They have been, what's the R word that's used? They have been re redeemed. They have been purchased up. Right? This is all biblical language. That's what Christ did for us when he went to that cross. The wrath that we deserve, he saved us from. The destruction that we were about to face from the enemy, he saved us from that. 
He redeemed us. And so this song becomes unique to the 144,000, for they have been redeemed. All right, so how else are they described? This gets a little crazy. All right, as virgins. <laughs> what? The church, the 144,000, those have been delivered. They're described as virgins. All right, so this is not, you know, even as the text would mention, this is not to slam women. It's not meant to do that. Um, the idea is similar to probably what many of us know of in the Old Testament when you weren't true to God, when you gave in to idolatry, you were committing spiritual adultery. Right? And so this is just being unfaithful to Yahweh. And, and the idea here is the 144,000, they're pure. They're, as the text says, they are blameless. They have no lie. They're not duplicitous. They don't just kind of live one way over here and then, okay, I'll do the Jesus thing over here. Right? They're not playing this game of deception. They don't carry anything of the dragon within. They're not of the beast. They're not beastly. They are those who now walk as pure and blameless as those who do not lie. They walk according to the way of the Lamb. They follow him in allegiance to him, even unto death itself. Remember last week, the church may die. Isn't that incredible? Like scripture says, hey, by the way, in the final age of human history, church, if it's to captivity that you must go, captivity it will be. If it's by the sword you must fall, by the sword you must fall. Oh, thanks. <laughs> like, so, so encouraging. But remember, we live by the life of Christ. We are those who have been written in the book of life, which isn't a promise of life to come. It's the fact that you have life in you. You have life such that even through death itself, you will be resurrected. This is the life of Christ that we have. This is what it means to be in Christ. We endure these onslaughts of the enemy even unto death. And it makes it a bit more easier to know that the church ultimately stands in victory. You can endure, you can push forward, yes, even, even through hardship, yes, even unto that, even amidst temptation, we can push forward knowing that ultimately we will stand in that unshakable place. We will stand from the place from which God's authority is fully and finally realized. The church stands in victory. Just as we, if you go back to chapter 7, just as we saw the church, that military census, that military, they stand. They stand through all the difficulty. They stand through the judgment time. Why? Because they follow the Lamb. Now, I want to put, throw a caveat before we move on. To stand with the Lamb does not mean that you've achieved something by your own goodness and doing, right? I think most of us get that. Your, your identity, your life, your sense of significance in this worth is not defined by your religious acumen, 
that you can just check off all the boxes that you came to church today, you know, and that you're going to be leaving and maybe reading your Bible throughout the, oh, check out, check out. I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. If you trust in that, you are falling into deception. If that's your sense of worth and significance, our sense of worth and significance can't be in the things that we do, even in following the Lamb, our sense of significance and worth is found in the Lamb. I'm not a good person. I don't belong. I will not escape the judgment that is to come because I do good things. It's because I've trusted in the Lamb. He is my worth. He is my significance. Such that even when the storms of life come and threaten my life, I will feel the pressures of all of that. The stuff of my life. Pastors will even fail. I hope I don't. But plenty have and plenty do. There are deep, dark valleys that even spiritual leaders go through and even at times make grave mistakes and actually sin. I'm a sinner. Hope you know that, right? And even in those times, it must be, it must be that we don't trust in what was, in the things that we did, in the positions that we held, but we trust in the Lamb. We keep following Him. Our worth, our life is in Him. It's not in the things that we've done, no matter how great they may be. It's in Christ. The church stands. And we can endure through the tribulation that comes, this, the tactics of the enemy, because we know we stand with Him. And to just insert this, the language isn't quite sure whether this is a heavenly picture or an earthly picture. You know, there's language of, of, this, of the throne room, but even the language of the throne room sometimes is referred to, even in Hebrews, like, even for now, we get access to the throne room. We get to step in with the elders and with all those crazy beasts and strange beings, and we get to praise Jesus. There's a reality of this being kind of a not already but not yet reality. You are standing with Christ on Mount Zion if you trusted in Jesus. You have an unshakable position, and some, at some point in human history, that will be fully realized. And so even this picture, it's like, it's hard to say if this is a future reality or a present reality, and I think the way we should see it is it's kind of like present and future. It's already, but not yet. You have the authority, you have, you follow after, you stand blameless, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. You are in some sense a spiritual virgin. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has accredited to you. You see how it works out. This is our standing, and so endure, church, endure. Why? Because this is our standing. Our standing is in the victory of Christ. All right, we move on. What we also come to find is that the outcome of this warfare, this battle, is going to be the fact that the church rests in blessing. It rests in blessing. What we have then in the text, is, as you see, verse 6 and following, is something like a literary sandwich, right? You have warnings in verses six through 11, and then you have the realization of those warnings, and between there's an, ad, uh, an encouragement to the church. 
All right, so there's warnings, the realization of those warnings, and an encouragement to the church. It's a literary sandwich, if you will. So verse 6, we, three, we see three what flying around. Angels, all right? And uh, the first angel, what, what is he declaring or what is he, what is he all about? All right, so there's this message, this declaration, fear God. And he, he brings up the reality of this impending judgment, but he also makes sure to remind us that God is the creator and sovereign over all things, who made everything. We'll come to the significance of that. What's the other word that describes what he's declaring? Catch it? It's an eternal what? Eternal gospel. Oh, this angel is declaring an eternal gospel. The idea of eternal isn't just time. It's to say it's unchangeable. It's unmuted. Nothing's going to uh, pervert it or make it something other than what it is. It's eternal in that sense. Yes, it's forever, but it's not going to change. It won't be twisted. It can't. And he declares this gospel. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. We know this gospel. It is the good news of Jesus Christ who came to us to save us, to live upon, to live and die upon that cross for us. He went through all that to become good news for us because we lived in the bad news of our own judgment. Judgment is coming, but Jesus has come to provide a way out of judgment so that we might come to live the life of Christ, to stand in the victory. So you have this incredible call, really, that is, it's a call of mercy. Judgment is coming. God's about to deal with this from his holy mountain. And yet before he comes to deal with, with bring judgment to bear, he's crying out. There's this heavenly call of mercy. There's a way out of this judgment. There's a way out. Come to Christ. Fear God. Now, you may ask, why? What kind of gospel presentation is verse 7? Not very theological, like Jesus isn't even named, and he is the good news. What's going on here? Uh, John is doing something incredible. He, he's actually borrowing again from Daniel chapter uh, 4, where Nebuchadnezzar, remember, he exalts in himself, and he exalts in his kingdom, and he becomes a what? A beast. And he is humbled by that experience. Eventually, then, he comes to his wits and he uses some of the same language. He begins to say, oh, there is a creator God. There is a sovereign one who I stand accountable to him. Praise him. Fear him. What John is doing is simply borrowing this idea of don't become like the beast. Repent of your beastly ways. Repent of, 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 of this, this objection to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Repent. Fear God. See him as creator. You know, what's the number one objection within our own society? It's growing exponentially. Is There is no God. They're the nuns. It, it, they're actually referred to as the nuns. There is no true religiosity. There is no true God. And so... Uh, the idea is, again, deception at play. If we can just erase God from the picture, we can create these grand narratives that pull on the strings of people's hearts and, and keep them up and encouraged. And isn't life good and wonderful? The 
the beast, remember, the image of the beast begins to have breath that I can do this life apart from the creator God. There's some sort of payoff. Idolatry, it works for us in some sense. But eventually, as the next beast says, all that's going to fall. But again, to the point, it's, it's to recognize that the enemy works deception first and foremost if we can just get the creator out of the picture. If we can just create a narrative that says, you don't, you don't need a standard of justice. You don't need something from which beauty and glory comes from. You, you, you don't need this creator designer. Uh, you, you, you just can believe these different philosophies that explain the world and live by those, they'll have some payoff, they'll get you through life, okay. This gospel is spoken into this mess to say, fear the one true God, not this counterfeit trinity. Fear him. The next uh, angel, what does he say? Babylon is toast. Babylon is toast. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Again, John is using imagery from the exile period, from Daniel's period. Daniel wrote in the time of exile, right? He was not in his home place in the Jerusalem and surrounding area. No, he was exiled to Babylon. He's a slave in Babylon as he writes his book, right? And so he's, John is borrowing from the imagery of Daniel, again, talking about Babylon. Babylon is 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 similar to you know, these, these beasts. They're, they're just nation states, they're political and religious entities that seek to push away, push God away from the people and to oppress God's, God's people. And so even, even Peter, when he, uh, I believe it's at the end of 1 Peter, he will actually refer to Rome as Babylon. Right? Babylon is just this picture of this political religious entity attempting to bring its agenda against the Christians, whether through persecution or deception. The idea of Babylon is just this, it's the reference to this whole makeup. It's this strategy of Satan. And Babylon is what? As he says twice, fallen. fallen. Fall. The house of cards will fall. This deception will be proven as it truly is, but just dust in the wind. Has no, the, the breath in the beast that comes to deceive the image of the beast, it, it, it has no true payoff. You think it has payoff, this idolatry. You think it has payoff. You think it brings some level of healing to your heart and actually leaves you face in the gutter in the end. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. So, the first is a call of mercy. The second is a declaration, more or less, of the Lamb's victory over Babylon. Babylon's going to fall. All your idolatry will be proven for what it truly is. And then finally, what, is the last, uh, what does the last angel say? What does he pronounce? Pleasant, huh? Last is judgment. These are the warnings of what is about to come. Mercy, there's gospel. When you think of the terror of judgment to come, 
And I don't know about you, but you read those, you read that description, and, and even for a Christian, you're, you've got to come away saying, like, is this real? Eternal, conscious torment, is this, is this real stuff? We'll get to that. Just kind of hold the tension for a second. You have this judgment that comes in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. It has the idea that the holy angels and the Lamb will be the ones executing this judgment upon all those who have taken up allegiance with the, the beast. And yet this torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest. There are the warnings that are proclaimed. Gospel, victory of the Lamb, and the judgment of God. As we transition to verse 14 then, again, remember the, the sandwich. You have the warnings, the realization of those warnings, and in the middle, an admonition to the church. So the other piece of bread to this sandwich is in verse 14 and following. And, and what do we have? What do we see first? Verse 14. What is it? An angel. Then I, then I looked, and behold, a cloud. We got, we got an angel in the second one. All right, he's coming. But you got, you got it right, Karen. Good job. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man. Again, this comes from Daniel chapter 7 and 8. When Daniel spoke of the beast in, in, in Daniel chapter 7, he juxtaposed, he put right next to us the coming of the Son of Man who would make sure that the beast would not have ultimate victory. And so once again, we see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Ooh, I wish I had time to do this. When Jesus is in his moment of trial, just before going to the cross, they pose a question to Jesus, are you truly who you say you are? And he says, yes, I am. And he says, you will see the Son of Man ascending on the clouds. And it's like all hell erupts in that courtroom. And you sit back and you say, all right, like these, these folks in the court, they've, they've, they've seen people you know, can, you know, try to say that they're the Messiah. This is nothing new to them. Why are they so angry? Why are they so bent out of shape? You know what Jesus was actually saying to them? It's incredible. Son of man, once again, comes from Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, where Daniel has just spoken of these beasts, these political religious entities that are coming against God, but the Son of Man is coming against them. So as he proclaims, himself as the son of man in that courtroom, guess what he's actually saying about those religious folks who are putting him under trial? If he's the son of man, then who's the beast? Daniel, or uh, Jesus in that moment is saying, I'm the son of man, and you're the ones that I've actually come against. You're the beast. You are this political religious entity that is that is coming against the Messiah and against his people. And so they're, they're just irate in those moments. Incredible. I just love when Jesus, like, you know, sticks them, gets them going. You know, it's wonderful. So what you have then 
right? Is the Son of Man, he comes, and, and what does he come with? A sickle, right? And so we see this angel then say, hey, it's time. It's time to reap. It's time to reap the earth. And the idea in verses 14 through 16 is that there is a wheat harvest that takes place. Remember, the 144,000 are referred to as first fruits. It's the idea that partial harvest has already come in, and now a final harvest is brought in. But then secondly, and more to a devastating point, there is verse 17 and following, another angel who comes. And you see these two angels, and one angel has fire from the altar, and the other angel has the sickle in his hand, and he says, it's time. It's time to reap. And he swings through the earth. And what does he reap? Yeah, can you see what that is? <laughs> I'm not sure what that is. Uh, grapes. Again, Old Testament imagery. When grapes were harvested, they would be thrown in the wine press and, of course, trodden down. It's interesting that what we're told towards the end of this section is that the wine press of God's wrath was trodden down outside of the city. To be outside of the city was that place of refuse. You know, that's where the leper colonies would be. To be outside the city is where the trash heaps are. You know, let's just burn all the trash. Corpses would be burned outside of the city. It was the place of uncleanness. It's where Jesus will actually utilize the place outside the gate to describe hell itself. It's where the fire is never quenched and where the worm never dies. It's the place of refuse. It's that garbage dump that is constantly smoldering, filled with worms. Jesus will say, that's the place outside the gate. It's the description of Gehenna or hell itself. Let me ask you, when Jesus went to the cross, where did he go? Outside the gate. It pictures the fact that he actually Listen, came into this unclean world. When we chose to be outside the gate, when we chose to follow the enemy outside the gate, Jesus says, I'm coming to go outside the gate, to go die for this people, to become like the cluster of grapes downtrodden in the winepress of God's wrath. That's the language. As Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he talks about, Father, don't, don't, don't let this be. Like, don't, this cup then that he speaks of. Let this cup pass from me. What is the cup? It's the juice from the wine press. It's the wrath of God. It's the imagery that Jesus is saying, I got to drink the wrath of God. I got to take it all in. I got to go outside the, the gate. I got to go into this place of uncleanness and I got to drink the wrath of God so that I might make those who are unclean clean. To make those who are dead alive again. Remember, uh, remember Ezekiel's dry bones, the valley of Hinnon, same place as the valley of Gehenna. 
It's the place of death outside the gates. Speak to these bones that they might live. Jesus went outside the gates so that salvation might be a reality, so that there in death there might be life. This is why Jesus went outside the gate to redeem us. But then, Hebrews chapter 13, where are we supposed to go? Do you remember? Hebrews chapter 13 says, we are to go outside the gate where Jesus is and bear the reproach that he suffered. And as we bear the reproach that we suffered, we are to carry on our lips the sacrifice of praise that honor his name. As you go outside the gate, as you follow Jesus to the place of uncleanness, while you've been redeemed, now you get to go and be the mouthpiece of redemption. You get to go outside the gate where Jesus is to proclaim him to others so that they might come to know him so that they actually might be able to escape the wrath that is revealed here in chapter 14. Judgment is coming. The harvest of grapes will be thrown into the winepress that is outside of the gate and it will be trodden down. It will be smashed down. And the outpouring of that, as the text says, will be blood that is as high as a horse's bridle and as far as 1,600 stadia. Pretty intense. Like God's not messing around. And the idea of 1600 stadia is, is probably language that refers to the four corners of the earth multiplied by itself and multiplied by a thousand. In, in other words, it's to represent this global reality. There's going to be none left standing, so to speak. It's not just 1600 stadia being 180 miles. Again, many of you may come from the background where those things are very literal. Um, I don't see that being literal. Um, I see that being something that is global. The final judgment will be a global judgment, and it will be fierce. It'll happen outside of the gate. There will be a final resting place, if you will, for all those who are judged. They will live in this place of unrest. Just as the warnings end, there's a judgment coming where there's going to be no rest. And, and as this one ends, you're going to be trodden down. Blood will flow. It will be a severe judgment. But sandwiched in the middle of the warnings and the realization of the warnings is this admonition to the church, verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. This is worth writing. The church is going to need this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may, what? Rest. There will be no rest for the beast and all those who follow him. No matter what you think in this life right now, all, all the good things that may be offered, all the idolatry, oh, I could have this, and I could have this, and I could pursue this, and this will, be, this will make me feel good, and this will give me some sense of rest. No, no, no. It's a house of cards that will be shaken. Judgment will come. It will be proven for what it truly is. And those then that who endure the strife of all that kind of stuff and follow after Jesus, it's those who will come to a perfect place of rest. 
And notice their deeds will follow them. Their deeds will follow them. It takes you back to the rich fool. Says, you know what I'm going to do? My, my, my harvest has come in and it's looking pretty fine. I better build a bigger barn and uh, fill that barn full so I can sit back and relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. God says, you are a fool. Today, your soul has been required of you. And the statement, I believe, that is said, he says, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? I'm tired of experiencing death in this world. Tired of it. And when death occurs, there's, there's a thought, what do we do with all this stuff? I'm tired of seeing uh, families kind of bicker over that stuff and just, it's just earthly stuff. It's just earthly stuff. Their deeds do not, our earthly deeds do not follow us. They have no true eternal value. In this life, we're moth and rust corrupt. You're not, you're not taking your stuff with you. I don't care how wonderful your, your, your home is and your cars and your stuff and your retirement package and all that kind of stuff. You ain't taking it with you. That's just here now. That's temporal stuff. Fall and fall in his Babylon. All that stuff is going to fall. It have no true value to it. But those who follow the Lamb, who invest in eternity, their deeds will follow them. It's like, I believe, Luke 16, the, sh the, the parable of the shrewd manager. Man, he is shrewd. Almost to the point where you say, this guy's evil. And Jesus is saying, some of you need to borrow some of these tactics in order to invest into eternity so that when you arrive in eternity, there are other people there who will be saying, thank you for sharing the word of Christ with me. Thank you for investing in my life, something that will last into eternity. Their deeds follow them. Part of the deeds that follow you into eternity will be the blessings that you will enjoy in eternity. You will rest one day in blessing. Yes, in all that Jesus has procured for you, but you will also rest in the deeds that you have done here and now. They will reap a harvest of eternal benefit for you. They will be a blessing for you in eternity. So church, endure well, right? The outcome is that we will stand in victory with the Lamb. The outcome is that we will rest in blessing. Don't grow weary in well-doing here on this earth. Live for the eternal purposes so that when we arrive, oh, we might rest in blessing. Maybe a final word, and it's off the beaten trail that we've been walking down. That's in reference to hell. We, there is some, if you go back and read this text again, I don't know how you can walk away not being impacted by hell. Um, 
a few things, and I want to keep it brief because we want to take the Lord's table together um, briefly. One of the things that we have to be careful of when it comes to the reality of hell is I think it impacts, the reality of hell impacts us inevitably. It should impact, it's meant to impact us. It's meant to create this tension within our own soul. But I think sometimes we allow it to create tension in our soul in the wrong way. Um, first and foremost is sometimes we think, man, really, sin? Sin is deserving of that? Um, like, we're pretty good people. Like, most people are pretty good people. Like, really, eternal torment is, is going to be their stay? And what's wrong with some of that is, is we are comparing ourselves with one another. We are, we are defining sin according to societal structure and, and, and values rather than horizontally with God. You know, it's, it's one thing to say, oh yeah, Hitler really deserves it. Hitler deserves Mother Teresa, oh, she's good, right? We have this spectrum, horizontally speaking. We place people on the spectrum. And, and scripture doesn't do that. It says we all have fallen short of the glory of God. That even in our good works, they become damnable. Why? Because we don't attribute them to the one who's actually given us life breath in the first place to do that. So we have to be careful when we think about sin deserving of eternal hellfire. It, it still is going to impact us, but it shouldn't impact us in the sense that we're evaluating sin on a horizontal plane. Rather, it should be a vertical God sets the standard for what holiness is, and therefore he sets the standard for what sin is. And, and, and his holiness and his sin becomes the beauty of his mercy. You will, not, you will not know the beauty of what this lamb has done for you and that he's worthy of your following if you don't recognize sin as an offense to God, not just some sort of spectrum on some sort of societal scale. Where do I fall? You'll always be fairly good point is, where do you stand in regard to God's holiness? And that's a, that's a difficult thing, but then you have to remember the cross. That's what makes the cross amazing, right? He endured the wrath. He took the cup of wrath that was de deserving, that I was deserving of. He did all of that for me. So we have to be careful that we're not evaluating sin on a horizontal line, but on a vertical, when we think about hell. It doesn't, it doesn't take away the tension, and it shouldn't necessarily take away the tension. I just think it puts it in the right category. Um, and then for others, and this just came up in a few um, conversations this past week, and I just wanna, wanna push the conversations uh, along. You know, some, some would come from the perspective that, uh, you know, we're, we're all fairly good. You know, how, how even, even in view of God's holiness, like how high can God's holiness really be? Um, is it right that even a good person, if they don't have Christ, would endure eternal hell? Um, I think we have to be careful in those moments to judge people. The thief on the cross in the last moment reached out to Jesus and Jesus saved him. Right? So we have to be careful of judging those who have done good and put this question, like how could they if they didn't have Christ? But I think what we can, you know, there's an illustration that's used 
of a, of a single mom. And she works her fingers down to the bone to provide for her child. And, and, and through all this hard work, she, she makes a way for her child to have the best of education and the best of opportunities in, in life. And as, as, as her child you know, comes of age and it's time to, to leave home, and she just says, hey, I just, just work hard, you know, serve those in need, and do what is right. And so sure enough, you know, her, her son grows up and, and he does all of that. He takes advantage of the opportunities that are given him and you know, really serves and, and helps out and does what is good. And yet, he never actually picks up the phone to call mom. He never sends the letter. He never does the visits. He's doing good, but he just never calling mom. That, that, you would say, Lenny's not being so good, right? Like, he deserves, like, she deserves his life, you know, in some sense. She's made it happen. And in a real sense, that's for us too in this world. It's to even be good without honoring the one who is good. Who's given us life, breath, and all things even in our goodness, it becomes something that's inexcusable. We're in need of a savior. We're in need of recognizing our creator. We're in need of recognizing where good comes and flows from. So when we think of hell, we need to kind of put it in the right categories. We need to be careful of kind of the, the, the other worldviews that may confuse hell. Because I know even for Christians, many have kind of fallen away or done some really, really crazy things to God's word in order to kind of like put hell in a soft place, a place that's not so threatening. We want to be careful of that, but we also want to be careful of not having the wrong kinds of concern when it comes to the tensions that hell might rise within our own hearts and lives. Final thoughts? Anything? I know we're way past time. All right, musicians, you want to come? Any final thoughts as they come? Either that was super clear or uh, you got plans this afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Yep. As we talked about specifically last week, um, we need to care for our kids. Right? The next generation will face even more tension and, and difficulty. So it's important to uh, be directing them, not getting too comfortable. All right, any other final thoughts? If there, if there are questions about all this, especially about the book of Revelation, you know, and a question of rapture was brought up last week and those kind of things, um, kind of like what perspective are we kind of taking as we go through the book of Revelation? We're trying not to take perspectives, 
Um, but we're probably, we're not taking the traditional pre-trib uh, pre rapture view. That Tim LaHaye, you know, God takes you away and you don't have to endure these terrible times. Um, there, there are good folks who take that position, so uh, we want to be careful. Uh, but we aren't necessarily holding, holding to that position necessarily. All right, good. Is that it? All right. Um, I'm going to ask that we come forward, grab the elements, um, take them to our seats. And I just want to exhort us uh, with uh, one passage of scripture as we sing a final song. So let's go ahead and stand. Come forward. of the reasons why God has given us actual physical things to ingest. It's a weird idea, right? But it's to remind us that we are taking in Christ's life. You have, as a believer, you have Christ's life. You have that resurrection life. That even through great hardship, even as we've talked about in Revelation, even through death itself, this life will carry you through. It is the resurrection life that we have in Christ. And so the uh, Apostle Paul, Colossians 3, states this, if you have been raised with Christ, if you have his life, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died from that way of life, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, so that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The life that we have now ensures us of the life that we have to come, in other words. And in the meantime, as this life is in us, we seek the things that are above. We set our minds on the things that are actually eternal, that will last, that will be the blessings that we take rest in. So let's take these elements, reminding ourselves of the life that we have in Jesus.
Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you have won the victory. Thank you that you lead us in a victorious procession. Thank you that one day Babylon will fall. Thank you that there is an expiration date to the tribulation and the trials of this earth. But now, God, as we even took in those elements, Lord, we trust even this week that you would help us by your spirit to set our minds on things that are above, that are eternal, that carry eternal benefit as we ultimately look forward to the outcome, the victory that we will stand in with you, the rest that we will have because of you. So God, give us strength this, this week. Keep our mind set on things above, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
warring different things, battling different things, wrestling with different things. But the call, again, is that we would make the Lord our trust. And the psalmist writes, like evil is cast and compassed me, it surrounded me beyond number. My own sin has overtaken me, and I can't even see. My sins are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails. Has anybody felt that way? Thank you.